When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about what Democrats need to know about seeking the votes of moderate Republicans. Steve Phillips has that report. Here's a hint, there aren't that many of them left. Also, the inequality industry. Atosa Abrahamian says there's a big political difference between seeking to reduce inequality and fighting for a world of equality. But first, the fight against climate change and Donald Trump. For that, we turn to Bill McKibben. He's a distinguished scholar in environmental studies at Middlebury College and, of course, the founder of 350.org. He writes for The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. And his most recent book is Radio Free Vermont. We reached him today in San Francisco, where he's part of the largest climate mobilization the West Coast has ever seen. It's on the occasion of the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco this week. That's a meeting of leaders from all the world's major nations, except for our own, with the goal, in their words, of taking ambition to the next level Bill McKibben, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you, John. Well, let's start with the good news. California's Jerry Brown on Monday signed into law a bill requiring 100% clean electricity in California by 2045. What do you think about that? I think it's good. I think it's the kind of final step in California stepping up on the demand side of the energy problem. California becomes the second state in the union to pledge this 100% goal. Hawaii was the first. And it's precisely what California should be doing. Uh, It'll be ambitious, but entirely doable. Uh, They're ahead of their targets now. And it puts in contrast California's lack of action on the other half of the equation, the supply side. California continues to permit an almost endless number of oil and gas wells around the state. So that's the other thing that activists have been asking for. And so far, no real sign of progress there. Well, before we get to the keep it in the ground side, I want to stick for a minute on the issue of 100 percent clean electricity by 2045. We record our show in Los Angeles, which, of course, is the biggest city in California, Los Angeles has municipal power, the Department of Water and Power, DWP. Right now, I believe Los Angeles gets more of its power from coal than from any other source. There's a huge coal-burning plant in Arizona, so we in L.A. won't see any uh, air pollution. The L.A. Department of Water and Power goal is to stop using the coal plant 
and replace it by 2025 with a new uh, plant in Utah that will burn methane. What do you think about L.A. moving from coal to methane? That's not much of an improvement. And I think what's going to happen, and I think this may accelerate under these new plans from Sacramento, are a much more ambitious effort to move to renewables. No one's going to be building big new gas or coal-fired power plants because of the economics, especially in a sunny place like California, the economics between the cost of doing solar and now the ever-reducing cost of storage just make it the logical way to address these problems. And meanwhile, Trump continues to roll back federal efforts to fight climate change. Just yesterday, the federal government gave an exemption to the oil companies and their obligation to make even modest efforts to control the release of methane into the atmosphere. Now we're just telling them to go ahead. And uh, this follows Trump's EPA proposing to weaken the rule on carbon dioxide pollution from cars and trucks and from coal-fired power plants. Remind us about the role of methane in carbon dioxide in climate change. Well, those are the two main sources of greenhouse gases. Uh, CO2 comes from the combustion of any fossil fuel, coal, oil, gas. Methane comes largely from the release of unburned gas into the atmosphere. Uh, When you frack and run gas through pipelines and things, uh, a lot of it simply escapes into the air. And if that number is more than 2 or 3%, then gas-fired power is even dirtier than coal. We've been talking about climate politics. There's also news about the climate itself. Hurricane Florence looks like it will come ashore in North Carolina on Thursday night. A million people are expected to flee. You want to say anything about the coincidence of Hurricane Florence, the uh, Global Climate Action Summit, and (laughs) the Trump policies? Well, there's always now some illustration of our falling but Florence is going to be a bloody and brutal affair, I'm afraid. And uh, it does remind us of just how much of a role stupid political decisions play. You may remember that it was the North Carolina state legislature six years ago that voted to ban the use of the latest science as it related to sea level rise in coastal planning. One of the reasons, I guess, there's so many more uh, structures in harm's way now there uh, as Florence brutally approaches. Well, the protests in San Francisco this week have focused on the issue of keeping it in the ground. Talking here about oil and gas, especially in California. What's the argument for keeping it in the ground? Well, we desperately need to keep most, we know that we need to keep most of the coal and oil and gas that we know about underground to have any hope of meeting the targets that everybody agreed to in Paris. The U.S. no longer is playing by the Paris rules, but these are the targets that science for a decade now has been telling us we must meet and that we simply can't meet if we burn any large percentage of that coal and oil and gas. So along with the move to renewables, a big part of the environmental movement in the last probably five years since the launch of the fight against the Keystone Pipeline has been an effort to keep those hydrocarbons underground. And California is a, probably the place that it would be easiest to really make this policy change. California is a big oil and gas state, but California's economy is so enormous 
that oil and gas are a pretty negligible part of it. And the hope was that Jerry Brown, because he's term limited and 80 years old and about to leave office and hence doesn't need any more of the huge sums of money he's taken from the oil industry for campaigns over the years, that he might be willing to exercise some real leadership here. 800 community groups joined this Brown's Last Chance campaign asking that he stop permitting new oil wells and start shutting them down, especially the ones that are right next to people's homes and schools. Uh, you can guess whose homes and schools they're right next to. Yes. And so far that's met with no success. Uh, Brown has been scornful of it. When one protester said to him, keep it in the ground, he said, we should put you in the ground. Which oh. I guess gives you some sense of how he's thinking about these things. Jerry Brown is hosting this Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco this week. As I said, the official theme is, quote, taking ambition to the next level. What would the next level be if it's not keeping it in the ground? Well, I think that what Jerry Brown's most interested in is this kind of first wave of climate response, of which he's been a really quite the good exemplar, working on building up renewable energy and cutting demand. And both those things are important. They're sort of the things that he's specialized in, but he seems unwilling, unable to go to the next, to really the next level, which is dealing with these questions as well of energy production. So give him, you know, good marks, give him good marks on the one and and uh, failing great on the other. And do you know anything about what we might expect from Gavin Newsom, who we all expect to be our next governor? Uh, I don't really. I, I know that the pressure will be unrelenting. And I imagine that since Brown has taken care of the first half of this agenda in certain ways, that Newsom will need to demonstrate his own commitment around the environment by moving on these questions that Brown has left unsolved in his tenure. Well, I was told by one knowledgeable person that for the Global Climate Action Summit, the next level actually means taking concrete actions to meet the goal set in Paris. Most of the participants are not doing what California is doing to meet the Paris goal of keeping global warming under two degrees Celsius. Is that actually true? Well, you I mean, nobody has yet met their targets fully and depends on where you are. But there are an increasing number of states and localities that are making pledges about what they're going to do. The devil, of course, is in the details. And, of course, the problem is we need this to happen sooner rather than later. You know, the speed with which climate change is moving is exemplified by what's going on in North Carolina this or South Carolina this week should remind us all that time is not our friend. The L.A. Times published an argument against keeping it in in the ground on their op-ed page recently, written by an economist at Berkeley named Severin Borenstein. I'm sure you're familiar with his argument. He says, phasing out California's oil production, as the climate action movement is demanding, would mostly have the effect of increasing production in other places and raising oil prices somewhat, and that the main beneficiary of that would be the global oil industry. So he says keeping it in the ground would result in eventually a huge income transfer from ordinary people to the oil multinationals and to the autocratic regimes whose countries produce oil. So 
ExxonMobil would get richer and more powerful. The Saudis would get richer and more powerful. I suspect you have thought about this argument. Well, the, the good news is one doesn't need to just have thoughts about it and write opinion pieces about it. These are the kind of things that uh, economists now are quite capable of modeling and indeed have modeled. And indeed, the models demonstrate that if California shut down its oil production, phased it out over time, that the effect would be net a reduction in carbon emissions uh, and a reduction of about the same magnitude uh, that comes with the other steps that California is taking around things like uh, renewable energy. So it's an important step and not one to be demagogued. Nobody's happy with the fact that we have to make big change, but we do have to make big change. And those who make it first will benefit the most. Uh, They'll be out in front. California has every opportunity to grab that lead in all kinds of ways. And of course, strictly from an economics point of view, if gasoline gets more expensive, people are more likely to switch to all electric vehicles. That's pretty simple. Yes. It's also always worth remembering that the price of oil is set on world markets. So the price of oil is not going to be dramatically affected for better or for worse by actions like this. And tell us uh, a little about the climate marches on Saturday. You were part of one in San Francisco. So the one in San Francisco was extraordinarily beautiful, led by indigenous people, frontline communities. Uh, It coursed through the streets of the city until it ended at uh, the Civic Center Plaza, where the great artist, uh, our 350.org's artist in residence, David Solnit, uh, had organized what turned into the world's biggest street mural. It was extraordinarily beautiful, and people can see drone footage from above with this endless mural stretching on around City Hall. Couldn't have been a more beautiful day in San Francisco, and the images coming in from the rest of the planet were just as remarkable. There were 900 or so big rallies in 91 countries, uh, and some of them bigger even than the one in San Francisco. I think my favorite pictures came from Kampala, Uganda, oh. where tens of thousands of people, mostly children, uh, young people, gathered for a really dramatic demonstration. Bill McKibben, his article on 100% clean electricity for California and the next task, leaving it in the ground, appears in the nation's special issue on climate politics. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Bill. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you, brother. Take good care. Now it's time to talk political strategy. The Democrats face a crucial decision about the upcoming elections. Should they focus campaign efforts on recruiting moderate Republicans, suburban voters who don't like Trump, or on the Democratic base, where turnout has not been great? For comment, we turn to Steve Phillips. He's a civil rights lawyer, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and the founder of Democracy in Color, a media organization dedicated to race, politics, and the new American majority. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, How a Democratic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. And he's a regular contributor to The Nation. We reached him today in Oakland. Steve Phillips, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Well, here's the strategy of the Democratic Party establishment 
focus campaigns and candidates this fall on winning the votes of moderate Republican swing voters because these are people who vote regularly, they are college-educated, and most important, they don't like Trump very much, especially suburban Republican women. They agree with us on some key issues. A lot of them want to protect the environment. They support action to slow climate change. They hated family separation at the border. But they are turned off by radical talk about abolishing ICE, about a guaranteed annual income, uh, about ending bail. And in this view, if the Democrats are going to win in November... They need campaigns and candidates who appeal to moderate Republicans, swing voters. What do you think? Right. So the size of the pool of these moderate swing voters is not big enough for uh, the Democrats to be able to take back the House. Sure, there are some, but even though even though the, the indications that show that they exist, so there are uh, you know, 24, 25 districts that are Republican-held, but that Hillary Clinton beat Trump in. So that's a, a data point everyone's looking at. It's to suggest that there are these numbers, uh, that, that, that we could go that route. Even in all those districts, while they voted for Hillary over Trump, they still voted for the Republican, for the Republican incumbent congressperson. And so if you look at the numbers of the people who did that ticket-splitting, it's not going to be enough for us to be able to win. There's always a drop-off in the midterm elections, and, and the drop-off is greatest among the core Democratic constituencies who face greater economic obstacles in their life to being able to participate and turn out in an election. So if our strategy simply rests upon hoping that the ticket splitters who voted against Trump will now turn against the incumbent congressperson who they voted for in 2016, that's going to be inadequate. And we have to look elsewhere, and there, fortunately there are larger pools and more promising pools of voters among those who uh, either did not, did not vote in 2016 or who would be likely to not vote um, in 2018. And that's more core Democrats and people of color in particular. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about who are the low turnout voters and the non-voters in America. Often by age and racial group is where you have the significant drop-off, and that in particular, uh, one of the biggest drop-off group uh, groupings is the Latino population. Some of all also African American, and that that's really directly tied to people don't really um, appreciate as much. There's a profound racial wealth gap in this country. So being able to overcome the various obstacles, the lack of time and transportation and all the other competitive demands on your, on your life when you don't have a lot of money is a challenge. And so you have to invest in being able to actually get those folks out to the polls. So like one um, classic uh, race that you know, I think illustrates these different issues is California's uh, 21st uh, congressional district. And that's a, a, a district that is actually a uh, majority Latino. And it's in, the, in California's Central, Central Valley, and uh, it comes with David Valadeo. And that district is 60% Latino. But in the midterm election in 2014, the incumbent Republican won that race because there was very, very low turnout 
of the Democrats. Only 80,000 people voted out of 500,000 eligible. Wow. Democrats only got 33,000 votes. But that's a district where if we got 13,000 more Latinos to vote, we should be able to win that. There are 300,000 Latinos in, eligible to vote in that district. So that's illustrative of where we should be moving our resources, time, and energy to be able to get the core Democratic voters. Latinos are two-thirds Democratic in terms of certainly in California where they, where they focus. So if you can get more of those folks out to vote, then the prospects of picking up these seats increase, and there's much more documented evidence around the effectiveness of investing in voter turnout efforts. Okay, we want to turn out poorer voters, minority voters, younger voters. The Democratic Party establishment has focused on raising huge amounts of money, most of which they put into TV and into consultants. Uh, Is that the best way to turn out these less likely voters? No. And so unfortunately, and we're actually getting feedback that this is, in fact, what some of the top Democratic Party and super PAC leadership is saying is that because there's historically low turnout among Latinos, some people who are uh, Democratic Party operatives and, and leaders are saying we should actually only invest in districts that don't have a lot of Latinos in them. Oh. And that, so it's, a, it's really this perverse backwards logic. And we have heard that that line of argument has actually been promoted by different people in Democratic Party leadership. So rather than investing in Again, the empirically proven efforts of hiring people from a community, have them go door to door, have them do phone banking among their neighbors, help pick people up at the polls, make sure they're actually able to vote absentee. You can increase turnout that way. You can identify for that California 21 district 13,000 people who, didn't, who would not be likely to vote and get them to vote. The contrast is that of the enormous amount of ads they do on television that uh, uh, it's not just the television per se, but it's who are you targeting? And so if you're targeting the white suburban voters hoping to change their minds, there's very little empirical evidence of the effectiveness of that. And yet that's the coin of the realm for too many people in democratic politics. Yeah, the research that I've seen has concluded that the best way to motivate the apathetic or the ignorant or the unmotivated uh, potential voters is not with TV ads, but with personal contact. The best is face-to-face if one of their neighbors comes and knocks on their door and talks to them. The second best is if somebody like them calls them up and talks to them on the phone, and then you go back to them, you keep track of them, you help them on uh, election day or when absentee voting begins. That is not first of all, a matter of raising tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a member of having the organizations that can put, you know, the famous uh, boots on the ground for the so-called ground game. Right, exactly. Right, and that's the fundamental strategic challenge and shortcoming in too much of the of Democratic Party politics is that challenge of the struggle that we're having right now. So the House Majority PAC, which is the primary super PAC, um, that's working on taking back the House. They've already reserved $40 million in television ads, primarily targeting suburban white women Republican voters in a number of these different districts. At the same time, there are organizations such as Texas Organizing Project, which is that's exactly what you're talking about, hiring people from the community, going door to door, 
doing calls, picking up people and taking them to the polls. The top's track record is such that they helped to elect the mayor of Houston. They helped to elect the mayor of San Antonio. They have a very demonstrable track record of getting out people to vote. Now, if we took some of those that $40 million and gave it to a group like TOP to be able to scale up their efforts, that brings three more congressional districts into play in Houston, in San Antonio, and in Dallas, where we could win if we mobilize larger numbers of voters of color. We haven't talked yet about the kinds of issues that are more likely to mobilize people who are less likely uh, to vote. What can you tell us about that? Economic justice issues are fundamental, and that in terms of the uh, you know, access to you know, quality jobs and housing, quality education, these are the fundamental day-to-day issues that people, uh, frankly, across the racial spectrum grapple with. And on top of that, we are living in a time of extraordinary White House-sanctioned racism and xenophobia. And so having candidates and messages that speak to and acknowledge that reality and that we are not going to allow groups to be targeted based upon their national origin or their color is also an important point and an important part of conveying the urgency of this moment um, in terms of what's at stake in this election. And then there's also been a debate about what kind of people the Democrats should focus on as potential winners in challenging Republican incumbents. The establishment Democrats have been very interested this time around in military uh, veterans. Of course, on the other side, we have the famous former bartender of uh, the Bronx and Queens, New York, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What's your uh, stand on what kind of candidates the Democrats should put their resources behind? We definitely need candidates who can inspire the constituencies and speak to the moment that we're facing. And so, you know, Alexandria definitely was one very shining example of that. But what we're seeing really bubbling up from the grassroots more so than in terms of what's being validated and promoted from the, from the party is mobilization and a movement of the constituencies and the communities who are under attack by this White House and by this administration to stand up and fight back and say, no, I'm going to step forward for leadership. And so you have a record number of women who have run and won the nominations at a time when we have a con- we have at stake, is Congress going to be holding accountable the admitted sexual harasser uh, who is in the White House? And so that is one aspect of this. And then on top of that, you have you know, a very much more diverse uh, slate of candidates who are coming forward at a time when this administration and this president are really demeaning and attacking and going after all non-straight white men categories. And so you've got, you know, different LGBT candidates running, different LGBT candidates of color running in different places, Muslims running and winning. And so we have the rainbow running, asserting itself when the rainbow is under attack. And that, in fact, is the best way to be able to mobilize this constituency. And then even on top of that, there's a race in upstate, uh, upstate New York, Antonio Delgado, African-American, running in an 86% white district. But that he actually is competitive and may actually win that district because he's from there and is able to speak to those white people 
in a time of racial uh, hostility. And that, I would argue, is one of the big problems we had in 2016, is all this burying our heads in the sand rather than actually countering the ex- explicit racial attacks that were coming from the, from the Trump campaign. Steve Phillips, he wrote about what Democrats need to know about moderate Republicans for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Now it's time to talk about reducing inequality. That's the focus of what Atosa Abrahamian calls the inequality industry. Atosa Araxia Abrahamian is a senior editor at The Nation and author of the book The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, and the London Review, as well as The Nation. Atosa, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, the president of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde, said at Davos not long ago, quote, the economics profession and the policy community have downplayed inequality for too long, close quote. But wait a minute, isn't the IMF the most powerful institution in the world pushing austerity and the privatization of public services? And isn't Davos where the richest of the rich gather to meet and greet? What's, what's going on here? Well, you've really put your finger on it, John, because, uh, because what's happening is that Ever since the 2008 financial crisis, exactly 10 years ago to this week, uh, there's been a huge amount of interest in this idea of inequality. How much do we have? How much is the right amount? What kinds of impacts is it having on society, on policy, on politics, on the way people live? And I think this is one of the most positive product of the crisis, but it also makes you think twice about where it's going when, as you point out, we have Christine Lagarde at Davos talking about inequality. A fun fact that didn't make it into the piece is that Lagarde gave that speech in 2012. And the year before her speech, uh, there was an Occupy Wall Street igloo at Davos, and they were the ones who were talking about inequality. So in one short year, the issue of inequality went from being something that activists were worrying about to something that heads of state, heads of massive international organizations, and people writing policies that in the past have increased inequality, arguably in lots of countries, uh, were wringing their hands about. So it's, it's a really fascinating development. I learned from your piece in The Nation that another one of those big organizations that's gotten interested in inequality is the Ford Foundation, which announced in 2015 that they were changing their mission. What does their mission statement say now? So their, their mission statement is now to tackle inequality in all its forms. Uh, this can be an educational inequality. It can mean, uh, you know, sort of vague ideas about the future of work and how much people are being paid. It can be regulatory. So it's a pretty uh, broad mandate. Um, but it's, <laughs> Again, pretty. it's significant that the Ford Foundation is, is pivoting in this way. Uh, and I spoke to Darren Walker, who was the head of the Ford Foundation, and he traces this commitment back to Henry Ford, who famously wanted his, his factory workers to be able to afford the cars that they made. And there's one more completely fascinating fact in your article. The London School of Economics, a couple of years ago, uh, started offering a master's degree in something called inequality studies. 
Uh, how much is tuition in that program? Yeah, it's just around for non for non EU students. It's just around thirty thousand dollars a year, <laughs> which, as far as master's programs go, I mean, compared to the states, it's a bargain. But that also says something. And even within inequality studies, you'll have people who pay more um, because they're coming from abroad. You'll have students who pay less because they're from England or they're from coming from the EU. And you'll also have students who have subsidized uh, tuition because they're fellows um, at this institute that's, uh, that's next door. And so even within inequality studies, you have inequalities. <laughs> you can go on and on, right? And it's a little facile to complain about this because all of this, I think, is quite positive. It's quite positive, but the argument of your piece is that there's a significant difference between fighting inequality and achieving equality. Please explain. As you point out, there's been a lot of interest from elites about inequality. Uh, Why is that? Is it that elites want to be just like normal men and women? I don't think so. Um, Is it that elites want ordinary working Americans to be as rich as they are? Maybe some of them, but I don't think that that's what is driving the conversation. I've spoken to a number of historians and people in this space, and the consensus seems to be that um, fighting inequality is actually not a very radical position to take. One of the people I spoke to said that this was the Bismarck approach. So you want to just maintain as much stability to keep the regime going. Sam Moyne, who is professor at Yale, who wrote a book about inequality in the human rights world, said that this is actually a, a pretty standard position of centrists throughout history, that it is a way of maintaining the status quo. Because when inequality rises to the levels we're, we're seeing lately, which are quite unsustainable, it threatens political stability. It threatens economic growth. It has all of these detrimental effects on society as a whole, on individual countries, on the global economy. So you can oppose inequality for instrumental reasons without necessarily wanting there to be all that much equality at all. Now we have some really good research and writing on inequality. And on the left, there's been a lot of questioning about does the focus on economic inequality take our attention away from racial difference, gender difference, the environmental crisis? What can we say about the uh, intersectionality here? My sense is that there's a pretty high awareness that some types of inequality lead to other types of inequality. So, for example, educational inequality will lead to wage inequality, will lead to wealth inequality, et cetera, et cetera. And I also think that conversations such as Me Too have raised awareness about things like the gender wage gap. So I, I wouldn't go so far to say is that this has been a really a siloed conversation or one that is exclusively focused on things like economics or money. I think to, to the researchers, great credit, they, they are very aware of this. And, and also the idea that wealth is self-perpetuating is quite prevalent in these discussions. But I also don't think it's a coincidence that in this time of heightened awareness about inequality, we're seeing these different movements crop up around different forms of it. Uh, even Black Lives Matter is fundamentally a, a movement around racial inequality and racism. And as we prepare for the November midterm elections, of course, we are thinking about what's the relationship between economic inequality and democracy. Yeah, there's been a lot of research, maybe not enough research, but but, but definitely a fair amount of research that shows that 
um, particularly since the passing of Citizens United, rich people can just go nuts giving so much money to campaigns and that this distorts the political process. Special interests have outsized power and they tend to be wealthy too. So you see a pattern here. Something that is worth pointing out that isn't purely about money is, is this idea of power, right? And to, to really fix inequality, you have to think about who has the power and who gets a say, not only in who gets the money, but, but in what policies get passed, what tax rates end up being, who gets a say in the electoral process, um, who gets to, to propose things in Congress, et cetera, et cetera. And, so, and I think that this idea of power does tend to be overlooked a little bit when we're, we're so concerned with, you know, what is the top 1% making this year relative to everybody else. There's another connection between uh, what you call inequality talk and politics, and that is the way inequality talk is in some ways consistent with uh, right-wing campaigns against immigration. I think that if you really consider the the evidence and the data about inequality in good faith, you hopefully wouldn't come to some extreme right-wing conclusions. But But you can see how talk of inequality can be co-opted by the right to say, okay, we don't want to let in any more people in the country because of inequality and we want to, we want to only share with people who we consider part of our community, part of our nation. The problem there is that how they define the nation is incredibly limited and, and sometimes has enormous problems, right? Those can be anti-democratic in their own right. And when you look at speeches by figures like Steve Bannon, who says, you know, we have socialism for the top and the bottom and, and everybody else has to kind of battle it out, that indicates to me that there are people out there who are thinking of inequality in terms of how do we keep people out and how do we re- redistribute resources only in the communities that we, ch- we define as American. So what is to be done, the big institutions and foundations that you're talking about have a very clear program, limit executive compensation, end corporate tax avoidance, eliminate the gender pay gap, tax the rich. These are all very good things. We're concerned about the limits of this approach. Yeah, historically, this approach, which I don't think is unfair to to call more or less incremental, has not worked. Um, Historically, the biggest reducers of inequality have been really bad things, plagues, wars, immiseration, uh, revolutions, things where a lot of people die really fast. So I don't think that we really should be looking to start more wars or, you know, spread Ebola or bring out the guillotines, at least not for the time being. I do think that there are sort of more radical forms of taxation that can be instituted. I think that some of these issues have to be dealt with on a global scale. For example, tax avoidance um, is a global problem that actually thrives off of the differences in tax policies between different countries. So there's got to be some cooperation there. Another really important thing to keep in mind and, and for the you know general public to be aware of is that hand-wringing about inequality does not mean, is not the same thing as egalitarianism the people doing it wouldn't even argue with that. Egalitarianism is its own thing. And I think that if we want both to reduce inequality and to make people more equal, um, this pressure needs to be coming on all sides and the sort of egalitarian spirit has to prevail. And and that's a tricky thing to do, right? But I, I think that being aware of the limitations of inequality talk is at least a way to start. The solution that we used to hear about to 
inequality was economic growth. You know, a rising tide lifts all boats and so on. There's a little more skepticism about the economics of that, but the the climate action movement has provided a radically different perspective on inequality because we can see that economic growth is destroying the planet. We cannot get more for everybody. How does that change inequality talk? We have to redefine what we mean by more, I think, because traditional carbon-based economic growth isn't going to cut it anymore. There's some dispute over who said this, but the the idea that a rising tide is not just going to lift all boats or even all yachts, uh, but it's going to drown us all, we're all going to drown, you know, that's, that's true. I think we went from believing that economic growth would, in fact, um, lift all boats to a deeper understanding that where the growth goes is definitely not equal and that the 1% really tend to profit from economic growth as we know it today, much more than, than ordinary men and women. So there are two things you can do about that. One, as one of the people I interviewed in the story, Heather Boucher says, we have to look at what we mean when we say the, the economy grew by 4%. Okay, it grew by 4%. Who did that go to? And then we also have to think about the environmental consequences of that growth. What is the downside? Uh, and finally, you have to think of new models to, to measure growth and to measure economic prosperity and well-being across the board. And that's a really fundamental aspect of this, I think. A rising tide won't lift all boats. It won't even lift all yachts. Instead, it's more likely to drown us all. Atosa Abrahamian, she wrote about the inequality industry for the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Atosa. Thank you, John. Nice talking to you. Finally, the new Nike ad campaign centered on Colin Kaepernick. That's the topic of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, 
and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.